From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Cubans talk about mojar el arroz, get the rice nice and wet, and they like, you know, juicy sauces. Hi, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to the summer season of Salt and Spine, the podcast on stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from Imogene Tendre, who is the co-author of Cuba, the cookbook. Now, Imogene and co-author Madalane Vasquez have compiled a thorough collection of more than 350 traditional Cuban recipes, pulling both from home cooks, restaurant chefs, and other resources around the country. Together, the two have more than 40 years of experience in Cuban cooking. Madalane, who has the most extensive collection of printed culinary works in Cuba, has run a restaurant in the country, written several books on Cuban cooking, and hosted a local cooking show. And Imogene, who was born in the U.S., holds a master's degree in Cuban food culture from the University of Havana. In the book, the authors take us around Cuba with recipes from red beans and rice to the country's national dish of ajiajo, which we'll discuss, to the stories behind the creation of the Cuban sandwich, hint it most likely occurred in Florida, and the Cuba Libre cocktail. We were so glad to sit down with Imogene at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Imogene. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so your cookbook is Cuba the Cookbook, um, which just recently came out uh, and is a dive into Cuban cuisine. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were hoping to accomplish with this massive cookbook, in fact? Yeah, well, I, I wrote it with my co-author, Madalena Vasquez, um, and we basically wanted to figure out a way to almost promote and rescue some of the traditional recipes that are not commonly found anymore. And also um, the typical home-cooked meals that you'd find in any household these days. Sure. And how did you sort of balance those two goals of both like preserving some of these really historic recipes that are integral to Cuban cuisine and paying homage to some of the innovative plays on the cuisine that some chefs and home cooks are taking? Luckily, Madalene has a great library. She's been collecting cookbooks for years and years uh-huh. and has um, worked as both a founder of the first vegetarian restaurant in Cuba uh-huh. and has had a cooking show on television. Right. Um, and we looked through her books and found more books. And, and something that I need to explain to listeners about Cuba is it can be difficult to get access to documentation for many reasons. Um, when cookbooks are printed, sometimes it's a very short run. So there are not a lot of cookbooks. If you don't happen to get that copy of that book right when it came out, you might never find it again. It's not the same as in some other countries where it's easy to find these old recipes. Um, so we did interviews. We talked to older people who remember recipes from generations ago that are not as common today. And we also referenced some of Madalene's other, other works, some of her cookbooks that she'd previously published. And then one thing I'll mention is that we went to Baracoa, which I wanted to talk about because it's a very unique place. And it's, some people say it's the only place where you can get authentic Cuban cuisine because its geography has, has really influenced the food culture. It's on the northeastern tip of Cuba, um, on a, a coastal region, but also surrounded by mountains. And a highway was not built until 1964. So there was no okay. access in and out. So that meant that these people had a very, you know, self-sufficient 
food culture that that was not found other places on the island, which were very influenced by different immigrant groups. Yeah. And you talk actually pretty extensively in the introduction to the book about the various influences on Cuban cuisine over time, particularly from migrant groups. Can you tell us a little bit about how Cuban cuisine has sort of evolved over time? I think you note specifically Spanish colonists, you note enslaved Africans who were cooking in plantations and the various influences and how that has shaped the country's cuisine. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that people are surprised about when they visit Cuba is why isn't there more fish? And, you know, there is fish. There's some delicious fish, but it's not a huge part of the Cuban diet. And the, uh, indigenous people of the island were pretty much eradicated by the Spanish. Um, there are some ingredients and influences that you can still find in, in today's food, but for the most part, they were wiped out. So it's not like, Mexico or Peru, which had these numerous civilizations that were, uh, that were then influencing the, the rest of the country's development of food culture. So with, with that, the limited, um, fishing techniques that the indigenous population had were replaced by imported pork and livestock and a lot of Spanish influence, of course, the heavy bean soups and, right. and, you know, people today talk about how the food in Cuba doesn't completely match up with the climate. Cold soups are not common at all. Right. It's really heavy and it's hot. And so sometimes people say, oh, we should eat lighter. But that's just for hundreds of years hasn't been the way. So, of course, Spanish influence. um, And then when they brought African slaves, there's, you know, ingredients like yams and plantains and okra that are still extremely common in the Cuban diet. Um, But then other immigrant groups as well. after the revolution of, in Haiti, um, some of the French colonizers from there moved to the eastern part of Cuba. And they were very influential in, in developing both coca and coffee plantations. Mm-hmm. And then other, other influences in, in the culinary arts. And then later in, I think, 1847, the first Chinese came as indentured servants. And they were key in establishing some of the first, um, small food stands and kind of got the, the little, gastronomy businesses going. Right. Um, and a lot of those, they're called fondas, these, these small food stands. Some of them were developed into larger restaurants, but a lot of them were very small. And some of them served kind of more Spanish or fusion food, but others were a little more traditional with the Chinese food. There is a Chinatown in Havana. Most of the food there is a blend of Cuban food and, and some more authentic Chinese food. But sure. some of the influences is you know, bok choy is very common. There's documentation that rice was cultivated in Cuba as early as 1600, but it was really the Chinese that popularized it. And rice is a huge part of the Cuban diet today. To give you an idea, in our ration systems, we get five pounds of rice per person per month. It's a lot of rice. Yeah. And, and when you see the serving sizes, you know, a lot of times it's very impressive. Um, that's one thing also that visitors notice about both Cuban restaurants and in homes, people serve large portions. The rice is very influential and that that indirectly came from the Chinese. Um, And then, of course, there was influence from the United States after the Cuban-Spanish-American War, when Cuba had what Cuban scholars call uh, symbolic independence. It was known as a neo-colony because the United States was very present in all of the economy and control of, of the country. Right. Um, and during that time, there was a lot of influence from the United States. Um, and you can trace that, you know, even in language. So in, in Cuba, you'd say, oh, cake, a cake de cumpleaños. You don't say torta or pastel or some of the traditional Spanish words. It's, it's pronounced, you know, said in English. 
And then up through the 1950s, when some of the kitchen appliances were being exported from the United States to Cuba, some of them came accompanied by these little pamphlets with recipes. And, mm-hmm. and luckily, my co-author, Malalaine, had some of them so we could refer to them. But right. again, they were, uh, you know, preserves, like a, a preserves with apricots or plums, or, you know, food that is definitely not native to Cuba. Sure. So all of these influences have... You know, whether it's a direct colony or a neo-colony or something else, it distances Cuba from the natural ingredients found on the island. So it can be problematic when addressing issues of food sovereignty. And and then going along with history, then, of course, after the revolution, there were strong ties with the Soviet Union. And so in our book, we include a recipe for borscht and another mm-hmm. for uh, beef stroganoff. And those those recipes um, are not very typical anymore, but they were at a certain time. And you talk to any Cuban of a certain age, born between the maybe 60s and 80s, and they talk about the, oh, cuando los rusos, when the Russians were here, when you know, and, and remember specific ingredients that were on the market that came from the Soviet Union. That's so interesting. And there's also a chapter on pizzas. Where do pizzas and pastas sort of come into the mix here too? Well, it was um, during the 1970s that... Cuba was getting wheat from the Soviet Union, uh-huh. and so the state opened up a chain of pizza parlors, basically, pasta and pizza, and it became like the go-to fast food option. And Cubans love pizza. And it became so typical that it felt like, okay, we have to include this. It's not super traditional if you're going, you know, based on <laughs> decades or how long sure. it's been um, part of the diet, but it's become so common to the point where I've heard kind of food experts express concern that the young Cubans prefer pizza over a traditional Cuban meal. Um, but that you see it constantly. You walk through the streets of Havana and you see people eating pizza. And and, um, and I think it's also, to be honest, it's a preference because people like it, but it's also a very quick, affordable option. Yeah. So if you need to get a, a quick meal on the go, that's that's kind of the, the go-to. Sure. You open early on in the book talking about a dish, and, and I think it's called ahiaco. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a soup. I loved the description you provide for that because it's sort of, you connect it to all of the various different influences on Cuban cuisine, and it sort of felt like the, the sort of melting pot analogy that people like to use. But for Cuba, can you tell us a little bit about that dish and the history of that dish specifically? Yeah, well, it was definitely not me. <laughs> it was Fernando Ortiz, who is this anthropologist right. who who compared it it's the national dish because it represents kind of the the Cuban population right but yeah it's it's one of those dishes that's hard to find sometimes because there are a lot of ingredients that go into it the ajiaco de Puerto Príncipe is one of the most traditional ones and we have this recipe and a couple others in the book and you know there's different adaptations so some of the older recipes the spices were culantro cumin and saffron to add color um, but then there's other adaptations that are that are done today. The Port of Prince stew, as we as we called it, um, has a lot of root vegetables. So there's taro root. That's ve- that's again very typical um, in the in the Cuban diet. Um, in addition to the tasajo, there's also pork. So again, you can make it with just one or the other if that's if that's what's available. But you know, it's long cooking time and it's a lot of ingredients. So that's one of the uh, reasons. Sorry, just going back, there's also the cassava and sweet potato and yams, all of this together. And, and people talk about it still like, oh yeah, that's, that's a very traditional meal, but it's not super common to have 
this particular recipe with all of the ingredients in a, just for a regular meal at home. It's usually saved for special occasion. And, you know, in the last generation or, or two, women have been incorporated into the workplace in Cuba in huge numbers. And so when you think about why aren't some of these traditional dishes being made, it's people don't have time necessarily to make this. Um, but you, there are a couple places that are, are doing really great. So what is sort of a typical meal then in Cuba? A lot of, of rice, beans. A lot of rice and beans, meat when available. Mm-hmm. We have a whole chapter on eggs because, you know, Cubans want animal protein. And if the meat is not an option, then they call eggs the salvavida, the, the lifesaver. Uh-huh. It's kind of like, you know, the, the good plan B. So in a, in a Cuban home, it's very common to have pork, but it could also be like an omelet or something is kind of the main dish. Uh, root vegetables are very common, both cassava, taro root, sweet potato. And it's, it's common to both boil and fry them. And dessert is very important. Yes. So that's something that, that you do find in, in typical homes. Um, the one thing I was going to say about the beans is that they, um, it's like a bean soup mm-hmm. and Cubans talk about mojar el arroz, like get the rice nice and wet and they like, you know, juicy sauces. So if, if there are no beans, which can happen, <laughs> um, then the, the next best option is to pour juice kind of all over the rice okay. um, from the meat dish. Um, and some people I've seen this in multiple homes will have just a bowl of the beans, almost like an appetizer, like just a little bowl of beans and then pour beans over the rice. And it was funny when I, when I wrote that, the editors said, what the same meal? Like they were very confused that that would be something people do, but it's like, you want to taste the beans by themselves and then add them to the rest of the meal. Interesting. And then of course, you know, tostones is something that's very typical. It's green plantains fried right. lightly on both sides and then t- removed from the frying pan. Um, mashed and then put back in the frying pan and fried again. And then kind of a more sophisticated uh, adaptation that's common now is stuffed tostones. So you'll do that same thing, but then put, it could be ceviche, it could be um, ham and cheese, those kind of fillings and, and served as appetizers. Okay. Um, you also have a chapter on sandwiches and talk about sandwiches, which are often, um, I think you note, not sort of thought of as a traditional meal, but often a, a replacement for a meal if you need it or more of a sort of snack. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of sandwiches? And then also there's a, a bit on the Cuban sandwich, right? Which has sort of a debated history of how it came into existence and to be called the Cuban sandwich. Right. Yeah, sandwiches are not, I mean, they are considered more of a snack. Being here in the last couple of weeks, just visiting my family here in the United States, I love eating sandwiches for lunch. But when I, and I, and I give them to my daughter, but when I've taken her lunch to preschool, every kid is eating rice and beans and meat. Like a sandwich would not be an appropriate lunch for a child. Right. And even the idea of eating something cold, like that's just not something that Cubans tend to do. Actually, the word sandwich isn't that common. So what people usually say is, oh, voy a comer un pan con algo, bread with something. Uh-huh. But just the way they say it is like, oh, just to, just to have, you know, just to fill my tummy. Like right. it's not really considered a meal. But all that said, bread is very popular. It's also subsidized by the state. So people count on their daily bread and consume a lot of bread for breakfast. And then, yeah, the Cuban sandwich, I've, I've, uh, compared it to like the burrito because people think that's Mexican, but it's actually Mexican American or right. know, something that seems so typical. But then when you actually go to the country that it's supposedly from, it's not very common at all. Sure. So I know of a few restaurants that do serve kind of a typical Cuban sandwich, but it's not 
on a lot of menus. And I've heard people, I've asked people about it because I, you know, of course thought, well, this is, this is typical. And some people said, yeah, but no, because then it's hard to find, you know, Swiss cheese is hard to right. find. And so, you know, a lot of, of these recipes that aren't as common, it does have to do somewhat with scarcity of ingredients or difficulty in, of finding the right ingredients. And so the story that we put in the book was about, uh, Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. where a lot of immigrants from different Latin American countries all work together. And kind of each contributed an ingredient, right. but then they, like the Cubans got the credit, but it was really kind of this mixture of, of lots of different immigrant workers who, who contributed each ingredient. So as you were putting this cookbook together, were there books you turned to for inspiration? You noted your co-author has an extensive library and, and resources. I, I imagine you turned there. Where else did you look? Um, we, we looked at a lot of cookbooks. Um, one person I was just mentioning who is very important is Nitsa Viapol, who is just this iconic figure in, in Cuban food. She had a cooking show for many years. It was, I think, starting in the early fifties up through almost to 2000. So it was okay. before the revolution and after. And she, uh, had the cooking show, but then, um, published many, many cookbooks from that show. And so we referred to some of her books. We also had thick books from the gastronomy ministry that where Madalani had also worked. So we okay. could refer to that too. And then we kind of combined the different, the recipes that we saw and thought, oh, well, this one has this and we tested them. And then others came, like I said, from, from home cooks who we interviewed for the, like, the salad chapter, for uh-huh. example. And we mentioned this in the intro. To that chapter, because Madeleine was one of the founders of the first vegetarian restaurants, which um, was located at the Botanical Garden, we got a lot of recipes from from those years and from other cookbooks that are not super traditional. They were specifically created at that time. And to give you context, um, during the 1990s, there was uh, this horrible political or economic crisis that resulted from the collapse of the Soviet Union. So in Cuba, the production of all food products went way down. I mean, dramatically. And, and there was people were malnourished and starving. Luckily, nobody was starving to death, but people were hungry. So we, uh, we took some of these recipes because at the time people would go to the botanical garden and it was a buffet and they'd line up and, and try these new ingredients that had never been part of the traditional Cuban diet. So pumpkin seeds and, and hibiscus flowers and things that people were unfamiliar with. And Malalani tells me stories that sometimes people would say, yeah, but where's the meat? <laughs> you know, but there was no meat at yeah. that particular place. So even though it wasn't super typical, Salads these days, what, what Cubans consider salad could be just a sliced tomato or, or like a nice avocado slice. And, and the way that, um, Cubans typically eat it, everything on the same plate. There's not like a separate salad. So it'll be rice and beans and meat and some root vegetables and then a little bit of salad on the same plate. But we thought it was important just to include some of these as a reference to, to the ingredients and the, and the recipes that were created in the face of a lot of necessity at that particular time in history. There was also, um, the, the, and a collective of authors, Cocina Cubana Tradicional, which was a big thick book, which was published more recently, but it was kind of a, a reference book to lots of other older cookbooks. And then there's Carmencita San Miguel was also somebody who, who's, who published a lot of books just before the revolution, but it was kind of that whole generation of 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And so we referred to her work a lot. And then there's Gilberto Smith Duquesne, who was um, a very well-loved chef who was involved in establishing uh, one of the biggest culinary schools in Havana. So a lot of his books uh, we also referred to. 
We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Imogene Tondre, author of Cuba, the Cookbook. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, a recreational cooking school in the heart of San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, welcoming space. It's perfect for learning techniques you can bring back to your own kitchen from their expert staff and teachers. And I personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss some of their upcoming classes like Food and Wine Pairing Made Easy or a special event with our first season guest, Nancy Singleton Hachishu, author of Japan, the Cookbook. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at Civic Kitchen SF. Com. Now back to our conversation with Imogene Tondre. So you have these home cooks that you turn to, you have several of these cookbooks you mentioned, and then you also feature recipes from chefs across the, the world, mm-hmm. um, cooking Cuban food, both in Cuba and uh, there's chefs, I think, from New York and London. How did you choose those chefs and choose to feature them in this way? Um, we had a long list of a lot of chefs we wanted to involve, but sure. we had to select a few. The chefs that we selected from Cuba are people that we know and have worked with who are really some of the most innovative chefs and beautifully artistic. I mean, one of the recipes by chef Asela Matamoros, uh, she's from Camagüey and there's part of the recipe is imitating the tinajones, which are these clay pots that are specific to that region. Okay. And it, it's just kind of homage to that region. And there are some very specific recipes to some regions, but for the most part, Cuban food can, can blend together or, or be distinguished between like Western and Eastern styles. So I thought that was really beautiful. If somebody picks up this book, is there a particular chapter or recipe you feel like is a, a really fitting introduction to Cuban cuisine? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, there's so much emphasis on meat. Right. I feel like, um, which is not a recent thing. This is there was a documentation of a, an American traveler visiting Cuba in the 1800s who said, Cubans eat meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. So, you know, there's the plato fuerte, the main dish. There's people talk about that. And I, and I would say that, you know, somebody might assume, oh, that's where you start. But I think in some ways the sauces and dressings is really important to give an idea of the way Cubans like their food, you know, moist and, and juicy and, and that a lot of the, you know, like the mojo criollo, there, there are some dressings that are so typical that are simple, very mm-hmm. simple. You know, the sofrito is something that's just sauteed, uh, onion, garlic, bell pepper, and you right. add some tomato sauce and some cumin and oregano. And, but that's something that people put in their beans with their meat. It's, it's just kind of the staple in terms of the, the actual flavors. And did you think about, um, various audiences when you were writing this book? So it's, it's a book on Cuba and Cuban cuisine, but did you think about cooks around the world and how they might access this or who is sort of your target audience with this work? I mean, I would say for the most part, it's people who are unfamiliar with mm-hmm. Cuban cuisine. The fact that we, of course, put the Cuban pantry is the first part where we describe right. each ingredient. I mean, that's very important because some of these ingredients are unknown right. here in the United States or in other countries or something that in Cuba is one. So corn, for example, the type of corn that is common there is kind of like pig feed, what what pigs are fed in this country. So it's hard. You have to cook it for a long time. It's not like sweet corn that you just throw in boiling water for a couple minutes. Those kinds of instructions were important. I wanted it to also speak to Cuban Americans. Um, I felt like it was really important to me that it be as authentic as possible. But again, we we tried to kind of do the disclaimer thing where, it, you know, we're putting all these salads in that are not traditional right. Cuban meals and saying this is not 
something you typically find um, in a Cuban home, but we're including it for these reasons. So, you know, I think it is, it is geared towards people who do not have a lot of knowledge. Um, but that's not to say it wouldn't be uh, appealing to somebody who, who does know a little bit about Cuban food. So what drew you to food then originally? Um, well, it was the fact that I was in a new place and, yeah. and learning kind of new recipes. And of course, some of, I grew up eating lots of beans and there was some things that were very familiar, but others that were not. And then I became involved in the project to, uh, it was basically a delegation of chefs from the Bay Area that came down to Cuba and we had workshops and they put together, um, menus using only Cuban ingredients. Um, and it was through that that actually I met Madeleine and we became colleagues and friends. And then, um, that kind of spiked my interest. So I ended up getting the master's at the University of Havana that was uh, focused on food culture and the private sector. So one of the things um, that really, one of the recipes that really stuck out to me, I think because it's just been so hot in the Bay lately, was the guava sorbet. Um, I'm wondering if to close, you can tell us a little bit about desserts in Cuba. Yes. Um, so that was uh, something else that came up. The editor's one of the copy editors wrote back and said, this can't be right. This is too much sugar. And I said, no, no, <laughs> that's right. Uh, sugar, of course, has a very significant historical role in Cuba as one of the main crops. And, you know, the slaves were given sugarcane water before they were forced to, to work on sugar plantations. And even, you know, during the 1990s when people were starving and there was very little food, there was still sugar. So people would drink sugar water to energy and calories. And, and to this day, the, um, the ration systems distributes five pounds of white sugar and three pounds of brown sugar per month per person. That's a lot of sugar yeah. and, and people eat it. Yeah. Um, people consume that much. Not, not everyone. It's very typical to add a lot of sugar, even to, um, you know, something like mango juice, which is naturally sweet. So there's, there's kind of this, there's some movement towards more consciousness. There's definitely concern because there's obesity and diabetes and, and issues with health, but it's hard because that's very culturally important. I would say one of the more typical, the guava sorbet is delightful for uh, this type of climate, but also the, the marmalade is something that's so typical. And, and one of those things that you go to a random person's house and they'll say, Oh, I have something, you know, cause it's not super common to have extra food to share with a, an announced visitor, but it, right. but the guava, um, the guava marmalade is something that is very typical. And, you know, uh, just to clarify, nothing like the marmalade that used to spread on toast. It's like a chilled soup kind of consistency. Mm -hmm. And you cook the guavas, you take, you remove the seeds and you cook them with a lot of sugar. You can, of course, adjust to taste and then blend it up. And uh, it's very common to serve with. Uh, white cheese or, or cream cheese. And okay. it's an interesting combination because it kind of yeah. cuts the sweetness, um, and is very typical. Um, and that's something I would say that is, is, uh, is pretty common in, in Cuban homes. Great. Well, I, I love ending on a sweet note. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much. Uh, thank we really you. appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, for exclusive content, including featured recipes from Cuba the Cookbook, and to enter our regular cookbook giveaways. Now, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more summary stories behind the cookbooks you love. 
podcast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.